in Luke 19, doing one of my uh, favorites this morning, triumphal entry. Kind of the moment we've been waiting for. This whole book of Luke, again, is the travelogue leading up to Jerusalem. And the question in mind is, are they going to accept Jesus as king or are they not? And you actually, get, ironically, you actually get a very convoluted and confusing story if you don't know what to look for. Because it will look as if they thought Jesus was king, and certainly they are hailing him as king. But you'll see that the end is that Jesus weeps over the city. They reject him as king while hailing him as king. And you have to walk that tension through this passage. So I'll go ahead and read that in 1928. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So however we interpret this, like I always say, let the black text interpret the red text. Whatever the red text says, if the black text says someone got very angry, you have to read the red text, Jesus' words, for example, in the sense that they got angry. So if you're not hearing what they hear and you don't understand why they get angry, you have to read it again. So in this sense, if Jesus is weeping over the city, pronouncing judgment over them, then it can't be that this was a glad reception of him as the king he wanted to be. You have to see this as a glad reception of him as king, yet it wasn't the type of king Jesus wanted to be. Let the text interpret their reaction, or rather let the reaction interpret the text. But what's strange about this story is what we learn is that it is possible to say you love Jesus and hail him as king, but get him categorically and catastrophically wrong. So, Take the man in the Ten Minas parable, for example, just before this, where man went to a country to make himself appointed king. One of the men said he wants him to reign over him, but when the king gets back, he found out he had wasted his mina. He thought he was a crooked and thief of a king. And he says, get away from me, you wicked servant. The man who wanted him to reign over him fundamentally misunderstood who the king was at all. Uh, and, And maybe more in a religious sense now, whether it's Mormons knocking on doors proclaiming a Jesus that is one of many gods, or it's Jehovah's Witness teaching you that Jesus is another created being just like us, or maybe closer to home, it's uh, people who say they love Jesus but think that Jesus is unconcerned with how they live or what they do or their idolatry or their sin or how their life actually reflects his obedience. That is a Jesus that does not exist. So what's strange about this passage and what hits a lot closer to home is the people who 
are desperately saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord are the people who catastrophically misunderstand Jesus and get him wrong completely. It's not always those in complete rebellion against God that are unbelievers. Sometimes it's people who are hailing him as king that completely misunderstand him. And when he comes back, he'll have to put to rights what it actually means for him to be king. So for the tension of this story, you have to see that you can really cut the tension with a knife in this story. And I know that we don't always see it that way, but you've got to understand that historically Passover was a tense, tense moment. If you want to add to the tension, uh, the Passover road or the, sorry, the triumphal entry road was probably 15 or 20 feet wide. So if you, like I was before I saw it, uh, thought that it was this broad highway, it's not. Jesus is probably his knees scraping the wall as he goes down this tight little packed road as thousands of people are packed into this road hailing him as king. It is a tense, tense moment. And just think about what Passover represents historically. It's the Passover, the exodus from Egypt where there was an oppressive enemy over God's people. God defeated the enemies of his people, restored his people to his promised land. And he uh, does it through a deliverer, Moses. This was a tense moment for those living under the reign of oppressive Rome. Because they thought that if God, if God did it once, he's going to do it again. And uh, there were many so-called messiahs that thought they were the second Moses. One before Jesus and one after Jesus. One before Jesus, he uh, stood on the Mount of Olives, got a following behind him, raised his arms like Moses did with the Amalekites, and says, attack the city like Jericho and the walls will fall like Jericho. They tried, and the Romans slaughtered about 6,000 people. And supposedly his head was still hanging in a cage above the entry to Jerusalem in Jesus' day. So Jesus knows the gravity of walking into Jerusalem to hail yourself as king. He knows what it could cost him, and he knows that it will cost him his life. Which is interesting that he knows it will cost him suffering in his own life, yet what he's weeping over is those who reject him and don't understand who he is, not even his own death he's weeping over. The second one was just after Jesus' time. An Egyptian Jew came into Jerusalem, did the exact same thing, started a rebellion, ended in bloodshed. And Paul actually gets accused of being that man. They said, weren't you the Egyptian Jew who started a rebellion in Jerusalem? And Paul's like, where did you get that from? No, I'm not an Egyptian Jew who started a rebellion. But understand that just because of that, Passover was this tense moment. Even the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem started on Passover, that re re revolt finally started when the, the lid blew on Passover. This is a tense moment. God delivered us once before from the Egyptians. He's going to do it again through the second Moses. So in order to understand this story, I would say you really have to start from the ground up. Unfortunately, this has often been, uh, I would say, interpreted not fully. We can't just take their words at face value because there's a lot of strange symbols going on in this passage, whether it's cultural symbols or more frequently it's uh, passages from the text that the crowds are using or Jesus is using. A lot, of, a lot of Old Testament text gets quoted here. And what's hard is that you have to know the context of the text that they're quoting from. Like Jesus saying the very stones would cry out. You have to know where that's from and what the context is or else you misunderstand it. Uh, interestingly, I'll just name off some of the symbols. There's the donkey. What does that symbolize? The place they're at, the Mount of Olives, what does that symbolize? The cloaks on the road, the palm branches, the crowds chanting, uh, chanting Hoshiana, Hosanna. Jesus acts out Zechariah 9 uh, while the crowds quote but misquote Psalm 118 and attach it to Psalm 148. While Jesus quotes from Habakkuk 2 and Isaiah 59 and then acts out Zechariah 14. 
I love this because if you're not paying really close attention to everything that's going on, you're going to see it as this glad, joyful reception of Jesus as a peaceful king, completely misunderstanding what's going on. So, granted, just listing out those symbols, there are going to be a lot of uh, scriptural references, namely Zechariah, Habakkuk, and Psalm, as well as a cultural detail in order to understand the palm branches. And while the palm branches aren't actually present in the Lucan passage, they are in Matthew, Mark, and John. So I'm just going to assume that they were also there in Luke, yet Luke, for some reason, chose not to emphasize it. And like many symbols go, symbols are really easy to interpret when you understand them in their context. Like I don't need to um, explain, for example, what the Boston Tea Party is. If I start going to Boston and throwing tea bags in the harbor, people not from America would think I'm insane. But you all know what that means. It's symbolic actions that represent something from an earlier time that's being applied to the present situation as if I'm saying our taxes are too high. But if you have to explain the symbol, it's kind of like explaining a joke. You kind of take away the punch of the symbol if you have to explain what it means. So I'll start first with what tipped the crowds off. I asked that question to myself earlier. I just want to know what was it that set the crowds off? If I had to pick two, I'd say it was the donkey and the location. The fact that Jesus said, go and get a donkey is huge. And the fact that he's on the Mount of Olives is also huge. Both of them actually from Zechariah. I'll start with the location, the Mount of Olives. In Zechariah 14, there's a significant reference to the Mount of Olives. I'll just go ahead and read that. Actually, be helpful. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. And the city shall be taken and houses plundered. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley. Uh, that one moves northward, one, one moves southward. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So they're not standing on holy ground, they're standing on battleground. In their mind, Mount Olives wasn't just this reverent place. It was the location of the final climactic battle when God becomes king over his people yet again, specifically by defeating all the Gentile nations. So the fact that Luke even points out they're already on the way down from the Mount of Olives as he's riding this donkey, the crowds go, I know what's going on. They know Zechariah 14, that the Mount of Olives is where the final battle is going to take place against all the nations and Jerusalem will finally be delivered over to God's people. It's a tense, tense moment, and Jesus knows that. Uh, Two, I would say, is the donkey, and you only have to go a few pages back to Zechariah 9, and I know this one is pretty popular. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and mounted on a donkey, but you have to, again, read that whole passage in context. It's not so much that you go back to Zechariah and say, yeah, sure enough, there's a donkey there, and Jesus has a donkey, and it says king in that passage, therefore he's king, but understand what the king does in that passage. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit." 
So in this context, you see there's this king coming, king coming sorry, on a donkey, and he's going to restore peace to the world, and he's going to be king over the whole earth. So the very fact that Jesus says, go get me a donkey on the Mount of Olives, they put those two together within three chapters in Zechariah and they know exactly what's going on. Jesus is going to a far country to be made king, like the parable of the ten minas he just gave us before this moment. He really wants us to see that this is how he's being made king, but it may not look exactly like the crowds want it to look. Uh, So because the crowds see these images, they try to interpret what's going on and they do a few things. They spread their coats on the ground, they wave palm branches, and they quote from Psalm 118 shouting, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, save us. And if you understand all three of these, you'll much deeper understand what they're saying. So uh, real quickly, the cloaks is actually kind of an obscure reference from 2 Kings 9. But if you, again, read the whole context, you understand what's going on here. Elisha, the prophet of God, appointed his other prophet to go anoint Jehu, king over Israel anoint him, which is to Messiah him. Messiah is the anointed one. So go Messiah someone, king over Israel. Tell him that he's going to destroy Ahab and Jezebel and Jehu is terrified. Sorry, the the prophet who goes anoints Jehu is terrified. So he goes and he finds Jehu. It says the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. And you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and all the blood of the Lord's servants by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut off Ahab from every last male in Israel, slave or free. The prophet says this as he opened the door and ran away because he was so scared of saying this, he just slammed the door open and took off because he was scared they're going to kill him for saying this against the king. And what happens is Jehu then walks into the next room and they go, who is that guy? And he goes, oh, no, no, he's nothing. You know, he's crazy. And they go, no, 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 tell us who he is. And he said, here's what he said. The Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. That's what he told me. And so the people don't get mad at him. Instead, it says they took their cloaks and they spread them on the bare steps before him. And they chanted and blew a trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So the crowds say, what do we do? He's riding a donkey. He's on the Mount of Olives. What do we do? So they start taking out their cloaks and spreading them before him. They're saying, Jesus is king. But understand, Jehu is anointed king so he can go cut off and destroy the house of the wicked pagan Gentile king Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He's not come to be a peaceful king. He's come to defeat the enemies of God in the flesh. See, it's not so simple as they're saying, you're so great, Jesus, we love you. Forgive us of our sins. They're saying, go down there and kill him like he killed King Ahab. So they spread their cloaks to show you that. Second is they quote Hoshiana from Psalm 118, which is not a title, by the way. Jesus is not Hosanna. Hosanna isn't a title. Hosanna means save us. So they're waving palm branches saying, save us, save us. They're not calling him Hosanna. They're asking him to Hosanna, to save us. This is from Psalm 118. And I know this is going to sound redundant. But again, if you read the whole psalm in context, you'll understand it's not a peaceful save us from our sins or save us from ourselves or anything like that. The whole context of Psalm 118, I'll read it for you so I don't try to quote it from memory. It'd be a lot more helpful. It says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surround me, surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surround me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. I was pushed, uh, pushed hard by the enemy so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. 
And then later in the passage, Hoshiana, save us, Lord, we pray. Give us victory. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not saying save us from our sins. The whole psalm is about save us from these wicked Gentiles backing us into the wall, trying to kill us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Hoshiana to save us. Save us. So the cloaks, the donkey, the Mount of Olives, Hoshiana, save us. It's all about save us from these wicked pagan Gentiles, not save us from our sins. And that's why you can be so close to saying Jesus is king, save us, but completely misunderstand what he's here to save you from. That will be the disagreement that Jesus and John the Baptist have. John the Baptist also thinking he's here to save them from the Romans. So the last thing the crowds do is wave palm branches in Matthew, Mark, and John. I use the Boston Tea Party illustration. I think that's an easy cultural national symbol you can just pick up and you don't have to explain to anyone except for those outside of that context. Another one I found interesting was the come and take it flag. Have you ever seen the come and take it flag? Pretty well-known symbol. You don't really have to explain the come and take it flag. Everyone knows what it's about. Come and take it from Texas. Except that that story didn't originate with Texas. It originated in 480 BC between the Spartan and Persians fighting the Battle of Thermopylae. It was in Greek, Milan Labe, by Spartan King Leonidas as a defiant answer to the surrender demanded by the Persian king. The Persian said, you surrender, surrender. And King Leonidas said, oh yeah, come and take it. And so the Texas revolutionaries looked at their situation and they stitched together this flag. He says, they said, you know what we feel like? We feel like those remaining Spartan soldiers. You come and take it. Now, you can interpret that however you want, but understand it's a different symbol from a different context. Thousands of years before, now brought into the present and applied to our context, saying this is how we feel. That very same thing is happening with the palm branch. Now, just a bit of brief history. I won't go too into detail because I'm, whatever I say, I'm going to be greatly summarizing this detail. In the intertestamental period between what we would call the Old Testament, New Testament, a lot of things happen. I know we call it the 400 years of silence, but it certainly isn't the 400 years of God not acting, although he may have not been speaking through a prophet specifically. This uh, thing happened where this man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes took over the world. Well, not the world. Alexander the Great took over the world, but he took over this small section of what we would call Judea over God's people. And at first things were fine, but then it went really, really south in 175 B.C., Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which Epiphanes means the manifestation of God on earth. So you can already tell he's going to be a bit of a thorn in the side for the people that think there's one God in heaven. And this man is not the manifestation of God on earth. Antiochus passed laws making Sabbath observance completely illegal. He passed laws making reading the Torah a death penalty. He passed laws saying that if you get your baby circumcised, they'll disrobe and kill them in front of you and then kill your whole family. The very thing the Jews were commanded to do by God in the covenant with Abraham. He would have the parents tied up and whipped to death if they had their baby circumcised or read the scriptures. So the final straw passed when Antiochus said, okay, now what you have to do, since this hasn't broken your spirits yet, you have to go into the temple and sacrifice pigs to me as Zeus incarnate. So some of the Jews compromised. They said, you know what? We're tired of this. God isn't going to show up. So we'll go into the temple and we'll sacrifice pigs, the most unclean of all the animals, to this man who thinks he's a manifestation of God, of Zeus, and flesh. But what happened is God raised up a man named Judas Maccabee to rebel against Antiochus. He rebels against Antiochus. And honestly, he raises this little rebel army, which would be like the core at A&M, taking on the United States military. It makes no sense to take on the Greek army. But somehow they win. <laughs> God comes through. This is why I have to say it's maybe the 400 years of silence, but God is certainly present in these 400 years. They defeat the Greek army. 
whether uh, they did sneak attacks, they did ambushes. And before every battle, they'd go through a significant time of prayer, asking God to deliver them in battle. And if he doesn't, at least giving them the hope to never deny him and never give up. So what happens is they win. And when they go into the temple to cleanse the temple, that will come up next time, as you can see, Judas Maccabee goes into the temple, cleanses the temple of the defilements, sat there by the Gentiles, I should say. And in 1 Maccabees, what we read, it says, on the 23rd day of the second month and the 171st year, the Jews entered the temple with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So this palm branch takes on this symbol that God came through. God delivered us from this oppressive Gentile pagan enemy. And they go and cleanse the temple, waving palm branches, saying, God saved us. Hoshiana, God did it. God saved us. So this palm branch takes on this come and take it flag. It takes on this nationalist, historical, cultural symbol saying, you can come get it if you want. We're going to give it back to you. We'll never give up because God's going to back us up. So the palm branch became the zealot sign. When they ultimately rebelled in 66 AD, the, thing, the very thing Jesus warned them about, they minted coins saying year one from Zechariah. And on the coin was a palm branch, not of peace, but of violence against the Romans. And when the Romans eventually won, the Romans minted their own coins and on it was a wilted palm tree. Some rebellion you had there with a sad weeping woman under the palm tree. And this is much after Jesus and Paul time, but in, just after the year 100, Emperor Hadrian, what he would do is make carrying a palm branch, a hundred lashes penalty if you even were caught with one in your hands, which one of the most famous Jewish holidays, you need one to go into the temple and wave it at God, a wave offering. And then what Roman soldiers would do after Jesus' time is they would wave palm branches at rebels that they were crucifying. Say, ah, oh, great palm branch rebellion you got there. It really worked, didn't it? God really came through. So the palm branch becomes this sign of God, save us from our enemies like you did with the Maccabees. Save us like you did with Egypt. Save us again. So you can see, to summarize, the Mount of Olives, the donkey, uh, uh, the cloaks on the road, chanting from Psalm 118. And understand in Psalm 118, they even changed the quote. Psalm 118 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the crowds chant, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. They put the, t- the two together. The one who comes in the name of the Lord in Zechariah, Zechariah must, or Psalm 118 must be the king from Zechariah. They know their text really, really well. So, but Jesus knows his text really, really well as well. And he responds to them. And what actually happens is the Pharisees say, Jesus, quiet your disciples. And understand, the Pharisees are trying to help. They're not the bad guys. What often gets interpreted is the Pharisees are saying, they shouldn't be worshiping you. And Jesus says, if they won't worship, even stones will be raised up to worship me. Someone will worship me. That's not at all what he's saying. Because he says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And you got to know where that's from, from Habakkuk 2. In Habakkuk 2, he's telling this story about oppression and bloodshed and fighting against your enemies. And he gives this line where he says, because you tried to build the kingdom with blood, the very stones of the temple are going to cry out at the bloodshed coming to you. So the Pharisees, say, the Pharisees are nonviolent as well. They're saying, Jesus, silence these people. Because we've seen it before. There's going to be bloodshed if you continue to let them chant that you're king and here to start a rebellion. And Jesus says, I know. I agree. But as long as they're chanting for me to go fight them, they're not fighting. Because if they try to fight, the stones of the temple are going to cry out at the bloodshed coming to them. Because they tried to build the kingdom with blood from Habakkuk 2. And what's interesting is Jesus then immediately weeps over the city. The new temple 
is crying out over the bloodshed coming to Israel. If only you had known the day of your visitation, but because you did it, now I, the stones of the temple, and weeping over the bloodshed coming to you when the Romans surround you on every side and they kill you by the 600,000 people. This bloodshed coming to you, the new temple cries out over that same bloodshed. So one more line from Jesus. Again, I know it's a battle of scripture here and how we interpret it and taking it in its context. He says, if you had known the things that make for peace, but because you did it, now they're hidden from your eyes. Now, he's not just saying if you would have been great Zen, peaceful people, if y'all would have just remained calm and let me handle it, I would have taken care of it. But now you got a rebellion started. No, what he's saying is the way of peace in Isaiah, the things that make for peace in Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, and what it says in Isaiah 59 is the characteristics of those who don't know the way of peace, those who are quick to shed innocent blood, those whose thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, those whose lips speak lies, those who give false witness about others, and those seeking oppression and revolt. Those are those who do not know the way of peace in Isaiah. So Jesus is saying, because you didn't know the way of peace, because you sought oppression and revolt, because you had so much iniquity you didn't think you need forgiveness for, now they're hidden from your eyes. Now you'll just go full headlong into your destruction and Rome's going to squash you in on every side. That's what he's quoting from Isaiah 59. So to summarize, they're not saying save us from our sins. They're saying defeat and kill the Romans, which is so interesting because if you look at what's going on, they're very excited and passionate about Jesus becoming king, but they don't understand him, which you can't equate the two. You can't equate excitement and passion about who Jesus is, but then completely misunderstand who he is. If you do, then you're no better than the crowd who are shoulder to shoulder with him saying, blessed be you, O king. And Jesus right back, not saying thank you, but saying you don't even realize what's hidden from your eyes. You completely misunderstand who I am. It's an interesting dilemma, really. Those who reject Jesus aren't always radically against them. Sometimes they think they're radically for him. But there's a difference, I think, in being willing to live for Christ and being willing to die for Christ. What's interesting, if we interpret it how I just said, these crowds, and I would say the disciples, especially Peter, they're willing to die for Christ. Peter pulls out a knife in Gethsemane. He's ready to take on the whole Roman army with a knife. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to fight. We're not going to fight. But when Jesus says, we're not going to fight, we're going to forgive and love, Peter runs. He's more willing to die for Christ and to live how the king wants him to live. So we really have to ask the spirit to search our heart of our excitement and our passion for Jesus. That's so great. I love, I'm the last person in the world that would say, don't be passionate or excited about Jesus. But is that genuine? Or is it just a smokescreen that we put up so that we don't actually have to live like him in the depths of our heart? You probably won't have to die for your faith if we're being perfectly honest here. Many of you will go your whole life, hopefully remaining faithful, and you'll never have to go to a cross or face actual physical persecution for your faith. But the thing is, if we're following Christ, you have the opportunity to die every day for your faith. Why would Satan want to see if you'll die for your faith if you won't even live for your faith? He's not scared of you if you won't live for your faith. You're no threat at all. But those who are willing to actually physically die for their faith are those who have lived a thousand deaths for their faith every single day, going to the cross, taking up their cross and following Jesus, dying to their self. So what's one more? What's one more final day of dying to yourself and living for Christ? So you have to ask yourself, are you even a threat to Satan at all? Does he like when you get up in the morning or is he terrified when you get up in the morning? Does he like when you get up because it's just another person who says they'll live for their faith, but isn't really willing to live for Jesus? 
or is he terrified because he knows you are willing to wake up, take up your cross and follow Jesus every single day. You're willing to die a thousand deaths to follow him. That's exactly what terrified the disciples. I pray that it would not terrify us to wake up and love our enemy and love our neighbor and love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might. Let's pray.